Hello and welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. It's been another week dominated by more awful COVID-19 numbers, further progress but inevitable stutters on the vaccine rollout, and always in the background, sometimes in the foreground, the effects of the UK's departure from the EU. But for this week's episode of the podcast, I want to take a step back, or rather a step inside, and take a closer look at how Number 10 operates, where the levers of power are in the centre of government, which of those levers don't work so well, how decisions turn into action, and the obstacles that stand in the way of a Prime Minister getting things done. So to make sense of it all, I'm joined by three people with first-hand experience of life at the heart of government. Jill Rutter, IFG Senior Fellow, veteran of the Treasury in Number 10, is with us. Hi, Jill. Hiya. Alex Thomas, who leads the IFG's work on the civil service and is a former civil servant with experience of the centre of government, is with us too. Hi, Alex. Hi, Bronwyn. And I'm delighted to be joined in our virtual studio today by Nick Timothy, who worked in Number 10 as Theresa May's Chief of Staff for the first year of her premiership. Nick, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me, Helen. Have you found yourself wondering what it would be like to be advising a Prime Minister now? <laughs> uh, I'm, I mainly spend my time thinking, thank God, I'm not advising a Prime Minister right now. Uh, the circumstances are, are so difficult. That was what was on my mind. Well, thanks for being with us. We're taking a look at the centre of government today because it's one of the main questions that has come up this year as the whole country is focused on whether the team around the Prime Minister can handle it all. And Alex has written a new IFG paper out this week on that very subject. It's called Heart of the Problem, the Government's Weak Centre, which gives us rather large clues to what it's arguing. Uh, Alex, is that right? Uh, yes, that is, Bronwyn. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, essentially, and as you say, we've been thinking about this for the last year or so, I've uh, come to the conclusion and make the point in the paper that the UK, for a highly centralised state, uh, where far more than many other countries, decisions rest with the secretaries of, secretaries of state and the cabinet, the prime minister is institutionally quite powerful. We actually have a very uh, weak centre of government. We don't have the capacity to organise it from uh, the centre of uh, government. And I think quite a lot of the frustrations that the Prime Minister and his team have experienced for the last 18 months stem from uh, that. I don't think it's uh, everything that's wrong with the British government, but I do think it's quite an important thing to think about. So you know, the, the ways in which the centre is weak, just to kind of rattle through them really. Well, can, um, can, I, just, yeah. can I just just jump in with just to get sure. one thing clear, uh, to hack through the kind of white old jargon. What hmm. exactly do we mean by the centre? Yes, uh, good point. Thank you. Number ten is it? I, I focused on this. So, so uh, if you're uh, if you're talking to a civil servant or a special advisor, the centre often means the cabinet office, number ten, and the treasury. That's often the the shorthand. I, I do touch on the treasury a little bit on this, but I'm thinking particularly here about the cabinet office and number ten, and actually sort of contrasting that with some of the uh, power and the influence of the treasury. So suggesting that the cabinet office and the number 10 need to need to be strengthened, uh, uh, both to run the government more effectively and at times to counterbalance the influence of uh, of the other bit of the centre, the treasury. Great. So thanks for clearing that up. And what, what are the things that you said really are wrong and need to be changed? Yeah, so I think the, the, there are a number of ways in which the centre doesn't do its job as well as it might. I mean, the first is coordination. I think the Cabinet Office is actually very good at brokering, smoothing things over, reaching collective agreement. That's one of its core functions. But it's not so good at raising that above the lowest common denominator. So uh, really actually um, a kind of setting direction and doing more of that rather than the coordination and brokering. I think the centre's not so good at identifying long-term problems, thinking through future battles, the consequences of actions, rather than the the immediate, what's right in front of people's noses. I 
don't think the cabinet office, the centre is good enough at holding departments to account for getting things done. I don't think it's got the institutional structure to to, to hold their feet to the fire. As I mentioned, uh, I think there's an imbalance between the support and the ammunition that the prime minister has as compared to what the chancellor has in treasury. That's not to say the prime minister should always be able to override the chancellor or vice versa. But I think there's a there's a structural uh, imbalance there. I think the centre is is bad at dealing with cross-cutting issues like climate change, social care, um, levelling up. And, and again, that's not to say that a stronger centre would solve all of those. Social care, for example, has you know, immense political uh, and economic challenges associated with it. But I, I don't think there's enough uh, firepower there. And then finally... The way, and this is, this is a bit inside the beltway, but the way the civil service is run, the nuts and bolts of it should be stronger from the centre. So the finance standards, the digital standards should uh, be Im- improved. They've got a lot better over the last five, ten years, largely. Um, but I think there's, there's a trend towards uh, taking a firmer grip from the centre. And again, not a panacea, but I, I, I think that's the way that's the way to go. But really, what you're describing is is, is trying to get something that works better across all the departmental boundaries while still being very, very much um, divided into these these departments with the secretaries of state and ministers at the top. Um, Nick, do you agree with this picture that Alex has just painted? Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to the analysis. Um, there may be some points of detail uh, which we can get into where I might uh, emphasise slightly different solutions. But uh, I mean, I sat in Downing Street for for about a year working for the prime minister but i also spent five years working in the home office so i've seen it from both sides and i remember you know in the home office we used to laugh a little bit about downing street i used to liken it to a sleeping drunk in the corner at a party where you'd just be going about your life as you wanted you'd be doing all the all the things that you wanted to do and then periodically downing street would wake up and start shouting um, and then you'd come over to the sleeping drunk and you'd sort of re- reassure them a little bit and get them back to sleep again. Uh, and then you'd go back to doing exactly what you wanted to do in the first place because there is a massive mismatch between the resources and capabilities of Downing Street and the departments. In the departments, you have uh, all the management information, all the data, all the experts, thousands of civil servants. Uh, in Downing Street, you're running things on a shoestring. Um, and 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 certainly in a centralised state of the kind that we have in Britain, that's that's a problem. But even if we were to decentralise and reform the states as we as I think we should, uh, you would still need uh, a stronger centre than we have. I think. What happens to accountability, though, um, if you start making some of the changes that Alex has begun to suggest? And I think he's going to give us more changes in a, in a second. You know the kind of who's responsible for what is it? Is it the minister on the department, or or does it all then begin to come back to Downing Street? Well, I'm, to my view, this would actually improve accountability because uh, um, I think at the moment there's there's often a lack of clarity about the agenda of the government. Uh, the um, you know what is what is a prime minister's ambition and desire what is a secretary of state's program this idea that actually there should be a, a properly published program of government i think is actually quite an attractive one I and mean, we shouldn't be too strict about it obviously events come over the horizon and uh, and uh, and we should be we should be flexible in response to those events but i think i think a, a proper program of government by which ministers can be held to account would be a good thing and i think part of the accountability mechanisms that should be in existence uh, would surely include a properly 
the well-staffed centre that can help the Prime Minister to hold his or her Secretaries of State to account. And I mean, I think the the recent appointment of Michael Barber is very interesting in this respect, because uh, I would say that in this particular narrow aspect of accountability of all Prime Ministers in my adult lifetime, I would say Tony Blair for a period probably got this uh, uh, got this right in a way that few of the others have. Roman, can I, can I just come in next? I think, I think what Nick was saying is really interesting because I think a lot of what Alex is trying to solve is the problem of actually not having sort of clear objective for a government or a, or a clear sort of purpose. And I think that really does confuse things enormously. I mean, it's interesting what Nick was saying about the Home Office because when I was at number 10, which is uh, a few administrations back, we regarded the Home Office as one of the very difficult to manage and get anything to do from the centre that they didn't want to do uh, department. So they were definitely in that, uh, in that box. But I think there's a real problem that the Cabinet doesn't sit down and think through, well, what are our real collective priorities? What are we trying to achieve? You know, where do we want to be at the end of a year, two years? Obviously, there'll be events and this government's been beset by that. But I think the lack of objectives and explicit conversation about objectives, manifestos don't really translate that well into into government because they tend to be, I think Jeremy Hayward used to have this figure, didn't he, Alex, about 570 commitments in one of the Cameron manifestos. And if you've got 570 priorities, you basically haven't got any. Yes, and Ben Ben Gummer spent some uh, time heroically going through trying to sort of work that through and work what was what was a priority and what isn't. And as you say, if everything's a priority, then 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 nothing is. I think. I mean, picking up on the points that that Nick and Jill were just making. I mean, recommendation number one from me on this is for the cabinet, and it sounds sort of obvious when you say it, but is for the cabinet to sit down uh, and for the prime minister to you know dip their hands in it and agree a clear policy program. Uh, I mean, the, the the obvious inspiration for that is the coalition program for government in. 2010, which again had its faults, but actually translated manifesto, or in that case, two manifestos, into what was quite a clear program for government. Because what manifestos don't tell you is how you organise your legislative agenda, what's a priority, uh, how to uh, deal with some of the the trade offs that are inherent in it. And I think setting that out, being really public about that, uh, that should not dilute accountability, going to your question, Bronwyn, but also then allow the Prime Minister to say, well, Secretary of State, you, you know, this is one of our core commitments and, and you're not uh, hitting your targets. It would also allow the cabinet secretary on the civil service side of things to have a kind of clear political direction and then work with permanent secretaries and other civil servants in individual departments to, to uphold them to account. But it sounds a bit like a throwback to a wonderful stately age when they could all, <laughs> all uh, sit down and do that right at the moment. What would it think? Uh, what, what, what would it mean? Because it, it's, um, you know, we're, we're talking about a year where the country has been saying, can the government manage this? But the government has been saying, we're having to change what we're doing almost day by day as this, the, the, this, uh, the nature of the emergency becomes clearer. What actually would that mean at the moment? Yes, I think it's a very fair challenge because uh, when you get an all-consuming crisis like uh, coronavirus, it knocks any programme completely uh, off course. And so, no, no, I'm, of course, I'm not suggesting the Cabinet has a Callaghan-style three-day meetings to uh, agree the strategy for um, coronavirus. But I, I do think that sort of uh, discipline would allow a sense of sort of prioritisation, as I say, looking beyond the immediate. 
And one of the other recommendations, which is obviously you know, sort of inspired by the Michael Barber, Tony Blair um, era that, uh, that that Nick referred to, is to create a delivery uh, unit, a really strong, a capable delivery unit with skilled people in it that can that that has the data and that can hold departments to account and i think in a covid like crisis you can then use that capacity to throw yourself forward a bit to have a uh, uh, you know a much clearer sense of what your long term objective is and then to monitor progress against that so avoid some of the sort of flip flopping that we've uh, that we've seen Okay, you, know, you and Nick have both mentioned Michael Barber, who I think we need mm. to explain to people. He's been dropped into this conversation and then maybe into number 10 as a sort of magical solution to all these things. He was well known for creating a delivery unit for Tony Blair and then for creating the discipline, if you call it that, of de- deliverology. And, and he's been brought in to re- conduct a review into government effectiveness. Uh, Nick, uh, you, you were mentioning him. How much use is one person in, in all this? Uh, well, I mean, in this case, uh, he is potentially of uh, great use because uh, if he brings his experience and his perspective on how to bring about a culture of delivery, then the structures and and perhaps political decision making uh, might flow from there. I mean, I think one of the things that um, has come up in the conversation so far is we the report is obviously focused on uh, structures and processes, which is you know, both of those things are, are highly important. But actually, one of the things we've been discussing almost implicitly is also about political clarity and political leadership. And, you know, I think if we take the the experience of the virus, this brings both of these things into play, because I think one of the problems the government has had at different points is that it's been a little bit strategically confused um, you know, from day one, was its priority absolutely a public health priority where it needed to minimise the loss of life and minimise suffering, and we would take the economic hit later? Uh, was it to do the opposite and to try to keep as much of the economy and life uh, open and going as normal as possible? And it's often sort of oscillated between the uh, the two positions. You know, we're talking about we're talking about processes and structures, but if you want proper accountability, you need clarity about objectives, and that can only be uh, a political exercise. I think. Interestingly, when uh, the government has actually created clear objectives, where whether that's about the number of daily tests that should be uh, made available to people, uh, or whether it's about the rollout of the vaccine, actually, you know, it hasn't always happened as fast as, as some in government or parliament or the media would like. But actually, the machine has swung behind those, uh, those targets and objectives and, and delivered them. The other aspect, as Nick was saying, it's it's not just sort of political clarity of direction. It's also prime ministerial time and focus. Uh, my sort of final thought on 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 this is: you can have the best structures uh, in the world, you can have a really functional system, but why did it work for Tony Blair and the aforementioned Michael Barber? Um, it was because Blair really invested time, energy, and focus holding departments to account and uh, uh, giving authority to his teams in the centre of government um, to make this stuff happen. So it is entirely, in that sense, reliant on the uh, uh, the, the focus and the attention of the, of the Prime Minister. Can, can I just add one thing, which is I think it also depends on the quality of the Cabinet and the extent to which Number 10 feels that they have a Cabinet that can be trusted both to share the Prime Minister's objectives but also to get on with the business of their own departments. If you look um, way further back than Alex or Nick, 
Mrs. Thatcher didn't have sort of delivery units. She had a very small policy unit in number 10, but she did have, you know, powerful allies in key positions in the cabinet who she, I mean, obviously she fell out with them at the end and it all ended in tears, but she did uh, did feel that they would by and large, you know, drive through her agenda. And Jill, where does the Treasury fit in uh, with this? In Alex's analysis, he, he's left it a bit on the side, concentrating on the Cabinet Office, number, number 10, but the Treasury is a central part of The Treasury is. I mean, we've seen various different sort of relationships between the Treasury and number 10 over the years. We saw the incredibly close relationship uh, under David Cameron and George Osborne when basically David Cameron's subcontracted quite a lot of the business of government, as far as you could see, to his chief executive in the form of George Osborne. I think that's probably actually slightly too close a relationship. We saw the sort of rival centres of power and Tony Blair feeling exactly as Alex has said that, you know, didn't I become Prime Minister and Gordon Brown not? And yet he's got all these troops to to call on and I have nothing in return. And that's partly why Tony Blair created the strategy unit and the delivery unit. We saw, I mean, I think actually the sort of relationships work best when you've got a bit of tension. Because actually the Treasury is more effective in many ways as a sort of controller negativity and you need some offset from number 10 to be pushing positive things. Uh, Actually, when the Treasury tries to develop and run policy, the real danger then is because it's also got that hold over the money that there is an inadequate challenge in the in the system. And actually, we see that in some of the work we've done at the Institute for Government about why do we have this sort of morass of complex tax policy? That's largely because the Treasury can sort of get away with it and cuts out any sort of form of other challenge in the way in which it challenges spending departments. But I think the one thing about centralising is if centralising sort of leads to a sort of infantilization of departments, it's not going to be in anyone's interest because the department's know their territory, they know the people who operate, and they ought to, emphasis on ought to rather than do, but they ought to know how to get things done in their areas. And the trouble with the Cabinet Office has been a bit of an interesting comments on Alex's report on Twitter from people <laughs> saying the centre lacks sort of expertise. It is, you know, the really sort of generalism of generalists. And I think, you know, how do you actually weld this big thing together is the really interesting question. Nick, I mean, on this point about getting specialists in um, and people who, you know, who is steeped in in some aspect of what the government is trying to do, do you have some sympathy for what Dominic Cummings was trying to do with special advisors? Well, I mean, I think on the point about generalists and specialists, I mean, clearly a, a sensible system would have a good balance between the two. And and I think one of the problems that we have with the existing system is that too many of the people in jobs that should be the reserve of specialists are quite often generalists who move too quickly um, from post to post and um, and area of expertise to area of expertise. On special advisors, I mean, I, I actually have quite a lot of uh, sympathy with some of Dom's frustrations with the with the state in general. With special advisors. I think trying to manage them in the way that um, they were managed in the Dom era was uh, was a mistake, uh, and I think probably led to a loss of the value that special advisors and departments can bring. But I would actually be much more radical about special advisors, and I would scrap them altogether. Um, to be perfectly honest, uh, I think I think fascinating. Uh, what would you What would you do? 
Um, well, at the moment, I, the problem is they, they can be sort of all-powerful or, or nothing at all. Um, they can be uh, they, they, they can practically run a department or be a bag carrier, um, and they could be they could be trying to run a department with the qualifications of a bag carrier. Um, uh, so, so I think I think personally, I would prefer to see a, a system where secretaries of state were allowed to appoint probably a slightly bigger team than they have at the moment, uh, like a proper cabinet, but a cabinet consisting of people um, who have been appointed to fulfil proper job descriptions and are therefore uh, recruited properly against particular criteria uh, so that they would be you know they'd be able to appoint their own sort of proper strategy advisor or their own spokesman or whatever which would give i think a bit more heft to secretaries of state in the departments but it would also i would hope uh, improve the quality of of that kind of more independent and sometimes political advice that secretaries of state get yeah fascinating jill and alex quickly what do you think of that I, mean, I have a lot of sympathy for the improving uh, and uh, sort of enhancing the status of whether you call them special advisors or you know other other advisors. And I and I like Nick's idea of sort of properly recruiting people to do proper jobs. My uh, caution on it is needs to be, it would need to be done in a way that doesn't disconnect that cabinet and the secretary of state from the apparatus that uh, that that that, that yes. runs the department and runs the machine. So there's a sort of I, I worry a bit about a risk of kind of floating off and and and, and not having that connection that the civil service you know for all its uh, uh faults does give at the moment so uh you, you need to do it quite carefully not to lose that connection i think but absolutely yeah. i think you know secretaries of state need that support and they need to they need whether it's two people or five people uh or or, or more a, a group that they can uh, they can rely on and that they've uh, uh they've got confidence in yeah i'm i'm quite pro people uh secretary of state being able to call on specialist advisors in their team. We found that when uh, I was at DEFRA, David Miliband had quite a strong team of specialists um, brought in from, you know, think tanks, other uh, environment agencies, other sort of places. And those were very useful, actually, as civil servants to work with because they, you know, you could bounce ideas around. They had their own ideas. They had a very good relationship with the Secretary of State. We found that really quite productive. I also think there's much more scope as well for um, doing sort of recruitment into named senior civil servant posts where people come in Mm. and are recruited because they actually have ideas about an area. One of the things that frustrates me most about civil service recruitment is the dreadful thing called (laughs) competency-based interviews, which which, officially precludes you from asking whether the person has any interest, knowledge in the area or indeed any ideas about how to reform things. Let's move on at that point. Uh, Thanks for all those ideas. Let's move on that point to talk about um, rebellions, if you like, mini-rebellions, some of the pressures on this particular number 10 from the Prime Minister's own party. We had six Conservative MPs rebelling over the government's plans to end the £20 a week of uplift in universal credit, which was brought in last year to help the poorest families cope with the pandemic. And 33 Tory MPs backed a Labour amendment, which would have forced the UK to withdraw from any free trade agreement negotiated with the state, <coughs> which the High Court had deemed to be guilty of genocide. And further pressure came from none other than Theresa May, who accused Boris Johnson of abandoning the UK's moral leadership on the world stage 
by cutting the UK's aid budget. Jill, Johnson's got an 80-seat majority. Uh, do, do these rebellions matter for him? Yes, I think they do. Uh, very interesting Nick's views on this, but it's it's quite interesting because those of us who are we're used to big majority governments, the sort of Blair era gov- majorities, the Thatcher era majorities, pretty much assume that actually Boris Johnson uh, had a lot of conservatives who completely owed the fact they were in Parliament to one person, to Boris Johnson, also owed to Dominic Cummings, but they certainly owed it to that 2019 election campaign, the commitment to get Brexit done. And therefore that we assume that the sort of days of having to worry about what the backbenches thought that uh, characterised Theresa May's uh, 2017 to 2019 period were were done and dusted. And it would certainly take a lot of these newer MPs quite a long time before they they actually dared put their heads above the parapet. But I think it's really been very interesting. And I think it's, you know, it's one of the things, I know the whips feel that they have less control when people aren't physically meeting in Parliament. It's one of the reasons why they've been so keen to have physical proceedings as long as possible. The rise of WhatsApp arguably makes it much easier to organise anything. But I think it's a really interesting thing that MPs now do seem to think that actually it's up to them, not just to read what the whip is telling them to do every week, but to make up their own minds on the merits of issues. So we've seen the emergency is very powerful research groups, in inverted commas, uh, the China Research Group, the uh, Northern Research Group organised by Jake Berry to you know, make sure that the government stays true to some of its levelling up commitments, and the uh, the COVID, not research, but recovery group under Mark Harper, all of whom I think will be very interesting, what should I can hawk to see what the Prime Minister's plans are for developing lockdown. And it's very clear that even though they may not win votes all the time. The fact that they exist is defining part of the policy-making environment in government because people need to keep people on side. On COVID, on a lot of things they can rely on Labour on COVID, but you don't want as a government with a big majority to be constantly being bailed out by the opposition. Yeah, no, I think that puts it very well. Indeed, a research group has now become a, almost a term of menace. Nick, what do you um, what do you think of this pressure? And in particular, I'd love your views on the uh, the universal credit. Yeah, I think in in a funny way, the problems with Parliament actually relate to some of the problems we're discussing with government, because I think to some extent it comes down to clarity of purpose, and in some ways, I don't think the government is quite clear about what it thinks about certain aspects of domestic policy in particular. Um, you know, what is its almost philosophical attitude to the way in which we tackle poverty? Is it about redistribution and the use of the state? Is it about community? Is it about uh, direct support for people? Is it about um, helping people to the workplace? What does COVID mean? Uh, if your emphasis is on work and not benefits, and so on, um, you know, I think with the Cameron government there was a there was a clarity of purpose, whether you agreed with it or not, about the you know the the urgent mission it had set itself was to deal with the deficit, um, and that meant uh, there was an expectation uh, in Parliament that you know most of the decisions would be taken through that prism. Uh, at the moment, I don't think there is really a sort of a view about uh, about the nature of the government in terms of its view of the use of the state and uh, how it builds up community 
uh, and things like that. And, um, and we, you know, people people may have celebrated the demise of uh, of, of Dominic Cummings and and Lee Kane, but uh, but there is now a, a lack of a, a a big political strategist in Number Ten. I think that's right. We really, you really need a strategist to cut through this question. On the one hand, you have the Chancellor desperate to roll back some of the things, the, the supports for coronavirus that he intended to be one-off. On the other hand, you have people saying, look, uh, universal credit is is low by international standards, the actual level of, of support, and UK needs to discuss you know, where, and the government needs to be clear where it wants that level of support to fall in perpetuity. And you don't get a clear sense of, uh, I mean, obviously it has been a difficult year, but you don't get a clear sense of what the government's thinking about the where it intends its its strategy to be. Yeah, I think that's right. And in, in in several areas of domestic policy and the universal credit row is a pretty obvious one. I mean, ultimately, one of the big questions that the government needs to answer in the coming years, especially with the deficit and the stock of debt where it is, but also with the long-term demand for public services because of an aging society and so on, and what that means for health spending and social care spending and welfare spending and so on, is how, how are we going to pay for everything? Uh, so this isn't just a question of uh, is you know how big is the deficit. I don't think anybody really wants uh, ongoing structural deficits, even in periods of growth. So there is a fundamental question about what the state does. And if you accept that uh, the state should carry on doing most of the things that it does now, then uh, then taxes are going to have to rise and and the debate will have to be about the, the you know the appropriate level of public spending and and which taxes will need to rise to pay for it but we seem to be quite a way away from any kind of clarity about what the government thinks about that i think i i also think that lack of um strategic or ideological direction feeds through to a much more short-term tactical problem for the government, which is uh, U-turns. And once the government gets a reputation for uh, U-turns, then its backbenchers stop relying on its uh, sort of strength and sense of direction and uh, start thinking, well, if the government's going to abandon this position in a week or two's time, what's politically in it for me for defending them? And so that creates an environment where um, it's much harder for the government to sustain discipline as well. I think that's a really important point, and we've obviously had had a lot of those, whether on you know bits of practice like school reopening um, or, or some of the bigger uh, bigger questions about lockdown. So, Alex, going back to your paper in your imaginary cabinet, the cabinet, when you're envisaging them all sitting down to plan out their strategy, how uh, would you see them getting through what Nick has just described? A really quite a big, profound decision about how. Um, how this is all paid for and what the size is of, of the state coming out of that. Those sorts of questions, actually, I mean, they need to come from a sense of you know, the, the prime minister's own ideology, ideology, but also the mandate that they've got from the electorate at an election. So I think that's where manifestos do sort of shape and uh, help determine where that comes from. I, I think, uh, I think it, certainly if I was uh, advising a prime minister, uh, I would say that it would be a complete disaster to set up a big ideological uh, debate in a cabinet uh, uh, away day, because I don't think that's going to work. So I think you need to sort of, it, it is the prime minister's job to set the frame, to set the ideological uh, reference points, and then to work out what that means for each individual area. So the Secretary of State for Education, the Secretary of State, Department for Work and Pensions, brings their perspective to the debate within that kind of ideological setting. Um, uh, as, as Nick has said, you've sort of 
is it a bigger state, a smaller state? Is it about reducing the deficit? Is it about levelling up? Uh, and I think th there doesn't seem to be a debate really internally in government about what levelling up, for example, is at the moment. So I think kind of framing that, bringing that to a cabinet and then drawing out what the consequences of levelling up and what each department can uh, can do to support that direction is the sort of thing that a prime minister could could do at the moment. Yeah, they're obviously difficult in a year when many of those metrics, to the extent that yes. they're measured by metrics, will have gone down. Uh, it's, it's a difficult. Jill, how much should we look to the March third budget um, for some guidance on this strategy? I think it's going to be very difficult. I mean, uh, I think Rishi Sunak probably did hope his March budget was going to be a chance to start setting out the post-COVID path, but I think at the moment it, it will probably be against a backdrop of continuing high case rates, infection rates may be turning down. Government will be very much hoping that. So I, I don't know how much he can do that. The real problem, I think, for Rishi Sunak is that he's got himself into a position where if you look at something like universal credit, completely abstracting from the merits or otherwise of universal credit, but he's got into a position where people will just look around and say, but it's only six billion, which in normal times is an absolutely vast amount of public spending, uh, when you're talking at the sort of margins that you deal with in spending rounds. But at the moment, seems relatively small beer compared to the yeah. you know, mm -hmm. eye-watering sums. And I think the real challenge for Richie Sunak and why I think he's, he's in for some sort of quite difficult times is to get people to start saying, well, actually, we're not going to spend money on this. We can't spend money on that. It was very interesting, I thought. And I thought, um, she says in inverted commas, uh, almost typically tineered of some of my Treasury colleagues, that the sort of frighteners that they put out was uh, about universal credit was, well, if we if we maintain this universal credit, we've got to put 1p on income tax or 5p on petrol. And what that really, I thought, highlighted to me was how readily we take money from welfare recipients, poor you know, poorer members of society, you know, and we think that actually asking them to give up £20 a week, which is actually really quite a lot of money uh, if you're on universal credit, and then bulk at putting things, which I think someone said that in order for it to cost you £20 a week in extra tax, you'd have to be on 100000 a year. So it is a really sort of interesting imbalance between the tax rises we think are totally unacceptable and the welfare cuts we deem to be quite feasible. And Rishi Sunak is going to have to, at some point, start opening up the debate, not that we've got to do these cuts because they're going to put up taxes, but start properly engaging with that debate about where a tax is going to go over the medium and longer term. Because while he can assign the coronavirus crisis spend to long-run debt and not try and recoup that straight away, there's clearly a big issue about the size, scale of the state and what it does. And I think all the current pressures are to have a more resilient NHS, better funded social care, do something to make up the deficit on education, which otherwise will be a long term inheritance. And it's going to be very difficult to get away with uh, with a sort of, you know, lots of spending restraint in that context. So that's a conversation you really need to start embarking on, I think very soon. And it would be good if he starts indicating that in March. I think that's exactly right, even if he didn't have the freedom that he thought. Um, and, and Nick, just finally, I mean, would Theresa May have 
hesitated before making that criticism of, of Boris Johnson. It's, it's fairly unusual to have a prime minister criticise um, a successor as overtly as that. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, I should say that uh, um, it's, uh, Theresa and I are not uh, in contact uh, these days, so I haven't talked to her about it. Uh, I mean, I've I've gently criticised her in the past for taking critical positions of the PM because I think you know she's a member of Parliament, she's a backbencher, she's obviously entitled to uh, give her view about particular things, but I think she needs to be careful about how she does so because. She doesn't want to give the appearance of being a little bit bitter about um, her experience and Boris's um, electoral success and so on uh, in the way that maybe Ted Heath did about Margaret Thatcher. And anyway, I think some of the criticisms are are probably a little bit misplaced given that it's certainly the case that uh, when I was working for Theresa, she was was quite hard on Greg Clark as the Secretary of State for being a bit too green um, um, uh, and now she now she burnishes her green credentials, uh, and you know there were certainly conversations when I was in government about whether the 0.7 percent aid target should uh, be retained in all circumstances, and now she criticises them for um, making the decision she once contemplated. All right, finally, let's just have a taste of America, given the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th president of the US this week with a starry young national poet and all the ceremony if not quite all the ceremony of usual then still a lot of it. I want to get a feel of what it's like in number 10 when a new president takes office that rush to secure the first phone call and all the rest of it. Jill, um, the the Biden team has been uh, very coy about the order in which it called uh, European leaders when uh, after the election itself. Is it a big deal if uh, Joe Biden calls Boris Johnson first or if Johnson gets that first visit to the US? I do. I think actually COVID means there are probably not going to be many visits going anywhere. And Boris Johnson has the absolutely massive advantage diplomatically that this year the UK is where the action is. So he's hosting the G7. We now know at a sort of luxury resort in Cornwall. Uh, You always push this thing around sort of regions that you feel you need to nod at. Um, And then is hosting the Climate Change Summit and, yeah, hugely helped by the fact President Biden's, you know, one of his acts on the first day was to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. So he's getting quite a lot of momentum from, uh, from the Biden presidency. So President Biden will be in the UK barring COVID problems, et cetera, later this year. So I think that's fine. And we don't need to rush to get Boris Johnson sitting in um, sitting in the White House straight away. And actually, I'm interested in Nick's view. I think, the, I think actually the Theresa May rush to Trump's side ended up doing her in some ways more harm than good that we saw back then, um, particularly with the way the Trump presidency turned out. So I think they don't need to worry, but obviously the UK will be very keen to make clear that we are still very big, significant partners of the US, that we're close to the US on quite a lot of issues. And, uh, and that's particularly important as we are separating ourselves off and finalising Brexit. But I do think this is one area where the government needs to think how the people in the White House will look at things. We've heard we're talking on Thursday, there's a row going on at the moment about whether we give diplomatic status to the EU ambassador in London. I don't think any of us knew this was a potential issue uh, until it hit the news waves. 
And it's one of those things which, if you're a seasoned State Department sort of life of the sort of people Biden's putting into his administration, and you see the Brits whipping up another sort of slightly confected Trumpish sort of row over something that doesn't really matter. I think the dangers are that we signal that we're not a really serious regime. We're just indulging in that sort of slightly petty gesture politics. So I think the government needs to needs to be aware that the way it conducts itself, in particular the way it conducts itself with the EU and with Ireland, will also be picked up and noted in the Biden White House. If it wants a good relationship, it needs to show it's managing that very maturely. Well, thanks for that. And um, one senior civil servant said to me this week that the only good thing he could see coming out of coronavirus was that it had pushed the COP26 summit um, beyond the presidency of Donald Trump. And so the UK had more chance to actually get some kind of deal there. Nick, um, what do you think about these relationship points that Jill has mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I think the, the media in particular gets incredibly hysterical about the relationship with America. And I try to avoid using the term special relationships. It just feels like it's a, a quite often a sort of slightly silly game where it's like, oh my God, he um, he's taken away the bust of Churchill or oh my God, I think they might have spoken to the French before us or whatever. When in fact, the relationship with America is uh, is pretty consistently strong because of the, um, the coincidence of of values and interests and and quite deep cultural ties because of the shared language but actually you know in a way that most people don't see it rests on uh, an extraordinary degree of security and military cooperation the intelligence relationship is uh, unlike any other in the world and that is actually the true basis i think of the relationship between the two governments and it's so deep and um, it exists between agencies uh, and all the people who staff those agencies at such a level that I think it would take certainly more than one president or one prime minister to ruin. And, and, you, and you know, Donald Trump <laughs> was, a, was a, a terrible president to have to do business with from the perspective of a British prime minister. Uh, but even he didn't manage to spoil that relationship. So I think, I think the, relationship, the relationship is fine. We should be mature about the fact that uh, America has relations with, with, other, with other countries too. But I think this point about the diplomatic events of this year is really important. Um, the COP conference uh, will show that there is uh, an extraordinary degree of um, similarity in the positions between Boris Johnson and President Biden. And, and so too will the G7, where... Um, Britain has invited India, South Korea, and Australia to participate. It hopes that uh, uh, this might lead to the creation of a, a, a so-called D10, a group of democracies. That's an idea that the Americans have favoured for some time. It's part of a geopolitical shift and a kind of reaction to the way China has behaved. Um, and and again, uh, it's an example of uh, a policy area where Britain and America are pretty much aligned. You were in number 10 when Donald Trump was elected. What was the reaction? Uh, well, it was... Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think it was exactly greeted. Um, I think we were a bit nervous and apprehensive. Uh, I mean, it was quite clear from his campaign that um, that he wasn't going to behave like a conventional president. And actually, the Foreign Office... Uh, and the embassy in Washington just didn't really uh, know very many of his people. So there was a sort of scramble to try to understand 
how he was going to behave. And I mean, sure enough, he behaved in wildly unpredictable fashion. And uh, and I think life was very difficult for Teresa when I was working for her um, and afterwards, and for Boris too. I mean, I think I've said before, he's, he was mad, bad and dangerous to me for a British prime minister, despite people trying to say sometimes that uh, that Theresa and Boris were too close to him. And you tweeted before you became chief of staff, I should say, that you didn't want any reaching out to Trump. Why was that? Uh, I think I think it was a fairly flippant comment. I wasn't working in government at the time, but uh, I think um, somebody had said that the Tories needed to reach out to Trump, and I think it might have actually been during the uh, during the primaries. And to be honest, I was just expressing my kind of displeasure at the idea of him becoming the Republican candidate or even the president. Um, uh, you know, I think that was a view widely shared by most most people in Britain looking on. Did you have to do much to get Theresa May and the president speaking on the phone? No, I think um, I think a lot of what happened was actually fairly conventional, despite the um, unconventional context. Uh, I mean, the, firstly, on the phone calls, uh, there's a, there's a protocol that presidents follow. He actually completely broke that protocol and started phoning various world leaders uh, on his mobile, which uh, caused some of the officials in Washington to react with horror. Uh, so, uh, so we weren't called as early as uh, the UK Prime Minister is, is normally called. And then we, were, we, we received the invitation for Theresa to go um, to the White House as the first foreign head of government. And, uh, and you know, sometimes that's portrayed as a, an unseemly rush to get there. But of course, you don't <laughs> you don't say no uh, when you're invited to the to the White House, regardless of who the president is. And there was important work to be done on that trip. I mean, you know, it's kind of forgotten now. But uh, but when he was uh, when he was a candidate, and in the earliest days of his presidency, there was um, a huge nervousness in Europe uh, that that he was basically going to completely abandon NATO. Uh, I think, and I think he'd made some comment about Estonia being Russia's backyard. And and I think the big achievement of that trip, to be honest, was uh, was Theresa getting him to say publicly that he was committed to to NATO and and to Article Five, which uh, you know you might say is <laughs> is only a limited achievement and the least you could expect of an American president, but I think it was an achievement nonetheless. And Alex, just give us a final taste of um, of what you think would be going on around the Prime Minister about this new relationship, and whether you think what Jill and Nick have been talking about really concentrating a lot on the uh, the events that Britain is holding, is hosting this year, the G7 and the, and the COP26, whether that's where the, uh, the attention will go. Yes, I mean, I think that, that that has to be right. I completely agree with what Nick and Jill were saying there. I mean, it is a, a huge advantage having the G7 uh, and uh, COP26. 26. I also particularly uh, amplify what Nick said about the security uh, relationship. A lot of that, for obvious reasons, goes uh, under the radar, but it is a you know phenomenally strong uh, relationship due to the extent that the, the British National Security Advisor uh, will be immediately reaching out to Washington. Um, in terms of the sort of the, the energy that's that's gone into preparing for it, one of the challenges, I think, was that the um, Biden campaign was very, very cautious about having any contact with uh, other governments after all the sort of uh, Russia scandals that um, that plagued the Trump 
um, presidency. So uh, that has made it harder for uh, the usual diplomatic uh, wheels to start turning. But I do think there will have been enormous energy uh, in the embassy in Washington, but also in uh, the foreign uh, policy advisors in number 10, working out what the Biden campaign was about, um, who the key players were likely to be, who had the best relationships with them. And that's all part of the sort of weft and weave of good foreign policy and uh, good uh, diplomacy. Uh, it, I, it's, it's also stood finally to say I completely share the slight weariness in uh, Jill and Nick's voices about the first phone call thing. Um, it is it is um, uh, frustrating, but it, it does matter beca- because it sets the tone, because the media are so uh, obsessed with it. It creates a story around um, uh, uh, around these things that then people feel compelled to respond to. So it's worth investing time in it, but not too much. I can quite see that. You, you don't hear the word special relationship in Washington, in my experience, other than in the grounds of the British embassy um, and its gardens. And uh, you, I think you're absolutely right about the security relationship, though I assume you meant going under a metaphorical radar. With that, we're going to have to wrap it up for another week. But my great thanks to Alex Thomas, Jill Rutter, and especially to Nick Timothy. Great to have you all with us today. If you enjoy this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. We've got two brand new Brexit discussions for you there. And on Wednesday, I'll be giving my annual lecture, taking stock of an extraordinary year for the government and looking ahead to the next 12 months. Uh, That's going to be chaired by Richard Lambert and with David Runciman as a sparring partner. I'm not going to be in the IFG building, of course, but you can watch live on our website. You can find all the details about our events there, and you can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review. And remember, you can find all our work, including Alex's great report on the Centre of Government at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. See you next week. <laughs>